0: Good morning Church. So we are on the the third installment of Ephesians, um, Ephesians chapter 3. So we're going to go straight into it. My title today for this message is The Apostle Paul, an Example and Administrator for Godly Unity. So we've looked at the fundamentals of godly unity, grace and peace, holy and faithful, each our own individual calling for the purpose of godly unity. We've looked at some of the challenges to godly unity. Godly unity for the individual in a spiritual war, the challenge of unity in diversity, the challenge of focusing on godly unity through the Trinity. That is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Even as we put systems and processes in place that help us to be spiritual and not legalistic. Now we look at one man's approach to this challenge based on the gifting he had received. So the title again for today's message, the Apostle Paul, an example and administrator for godly unity. So we go to Ephesians 3 verse 1. It says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. So my first point here is, before we move on, one more challenge to godly unity. What's the reason Paul's a prisoner? This was his first imprisonment. He was in prison because he was proclaiming Christ as king, as opposed to Caesar. The Jews didn't like the Roman rule, but Paul proclaiming the gospel message was worse than Roman rule, since Jesus was a more clear threat to their way of life than even the Romans. So much so that they, the Jews, set Paul up and had him imprisoned. The Jews framed the gospel as being in direct opposition to the cult of personality of the imperial Caesar. Jesus is Lord versus Caesar, the imperial king. This was a constant challenge for the disciples, striving to obey God rather than men. The tug of war between Caesar and Judaism and the church caught in the middle. You could well imagine the constant political, social, religious and economic pressures the church the disciples would have been undergoing as they would have had varying views on these things. External to the church, but with the potential to fracture the church. They needed leadership and guidance to help them navigate the challenges of their time. Paul, the prisoner for the Lord, was the man appointed by God for this task. So last time when we look at the challenges of godly unity, they were mainly internal to the church. What we are seeing here now, Paul as a prisoner was facing challenges external with the, essentially the government, right? So that is something for us to also look out as we, we strive to aim for godly unity. My second point is Paul the apostle and administrator, humiliated and humble. So the verses we're going to look at are from verse 2 to verse 6 in Ephesians 3. is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So from verse 2 on the outset, we have it stated here that surely you have heard, you know, it was common knowledge that Paul was given the administration of God's grace for the Gentiles. All right, if you go down to the latter part of verse 5, he wasn't the only one though. Um, he mentions God's holy apostles, plural, and prophets. So there were a category of people who were essentially responsible, who had this gifting from God to administrate this grace that came from God. All right? going on to verse 3, it says in Ephesians 3, that is the mystery of, Again, we had this word appearing a couple of times in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And Paul elaborates on it in verse 6. He says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. It was a mystery to the, to the Jews, to start with, and the Jewish church, that God will allow the Gentiles to be part of this salvation that God was giving. It was, even though for us probably it's, it's easy to understand, okay, why wouldn't God want to give it to the entire world? But for them, does it tell you how close-minded they were because of their environment, that they regarded this as a mystery, that this was open to the Gentiles as well. But as we look at Paul as an apostle and administrator, the core of this passage starts in the latter part of verse 3 and goes on to the middle of verse 5, and I'll read again. This mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Here, Paul uses the words revelation. Revelation meaning that he had a direct insight from God. This wasn't given to everybody and anybody. Paul received these revelations regarding this mystery directly from God through his Holy Spirit. This was part of God's grace to Paul. Not only salvation that he also received as we have received, as all Christians receive, but this is part of his specific gift that he received these revelations. And here, what he said he did with that revelation. He says, as I have already written briefly, When we think of the Bible, we think of the Old Testament and the New Testament. When we think of the New Testament, we think of the Gospels and all these letters. The vast majority of letters in the Bible are what Paul would have written briefly to various churches about the revelations that he would have received. In verse 4, he tells them, In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. He's encouraging the church to read what it is he has written. For us, that is us reading the Bible, the actual text that Paul would have written down that we have received, which are translations, yes, but they are pretty good translations of what was spoken to the early church. These are revelations coming directly from God. And as an apostle and an administrator, Paul took great pains to write these letters, to instruct, to direct, to lead the church in going where God wanted them to go. You know, there's a a passage of Scripture that we are are pretty familiar with in 2 Peter 1, um, verse 19. It says, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture, no revelation, that in Paul's writing, came about by, their own, by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God has made it clear his intention through the word. God has given us his word as a light shining in a dark place. This world is a very dark place. And we need the light of God's word to guide us, to direct us, to show us where to go and what to do. So that's why Paul had took pains as an, as an administrator for God's grace to write these words down. And we have them 2,000 years later to guide us and to lead us. As we focus on the humiliation and the, 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 how Paul was humble in the face of this, this gospel, we look at, at verse 7. It says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace. Now, Paul, as you would know, received a revelation from God on the road to Damascus. And then he went and um, he got baptized after that. And he received the gift of the Holy Spirit. It says, given me through the working of his power. And I think this is referring to, in verse 7, the fact that he received the gifting of revelation, of apostleship. In verse 8, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me. To preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So, Paul has been given this gift of God's grace, the salvation. Through the working of his power, this was given to him and the other apostles and the prophets in the first century so that they would be able to give us the revelation that we have now in the word of God. He describes himself in verse 8 as, I am less than the least of all God's people, of the Lord's people, right? This grace was given to me. He kind of points to the fact that in order for this, for his gifting, reach his full potential and what he did i mean through paul's efforts the gospel spread through most of the gentile world right this grace was given to him because of his attitude of humility and also i would dare say humiliation so we could actually look at paul's own description of what it is he experienced um, in second corinthians 11 and I'll read from verse 21 to 33 and also chapter 12, verse 6 to 10. It says, and he, he's speaking this in the context of being opposed by other Christians and what people call super apostles. As he tell you, the, 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 the mindset of people, that they were looking at people who were, I guess, larger than life, who, who seemed real cool, the super apostles as he called them, but Paul strove for humility. So let's read in um, 2 Corinthians 11 from verse 21. It says, Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. You see the humiliation? 5 times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus 1. 3 times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. 3 times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches, who is weak and I do not feel weak, who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn. So if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. In verse 6 of chapter 12, he says, Even if I should boast, choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power. May rest on me, this is the same power Paul, Paul is talking about that he was able to use his revelations with, and verse ten. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So we see that why why Paul said, "I am less than the least of all the Lord's people." One, he was a persecutor of the church, but he endured tremendous hardships. And the grace that was given to him was made that much more strong because of what he experienced, but also because he delighted in weakness. Because when he was weak, it's when God was strong. You know, recently I was um, doing a study on Psalm 119 with a brother. We, we did the, all of Psalm 119 for the fast um, in January. And a couple of verses stood out to me. In Psalm 119, reading from verse 71, it says... It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The psalmist is actually saying affliction is good for us. Because of it, we cling to the word of God. It humbles us. Just like that light shining in a dark place, the challenges of life should cause us to cling to God's word. In verse 75, I know, Lord, that your laws are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Again, he know, he, it's, it's, he's knowing that God's laws are righteous even through his affliction because it's keeping him along the straight and narrow path. Verse 96, I thought this was really profound. It says, To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. The psalmist is saying, you know what? Anything that you see that looks perfect, it could be um, a beautiful sunset, it could be some form of something in God's creation. You know, it looks perfect. It has a limit. But he's saying that God's word, it's boundless. And Paul chose to humble himself through his affliction, but also to the word of God, the revelation that he received, so that the grace that was in him, the gifting that he had, could have full effect. And I believe we too must experience that. You know, in Ephesians 2, it it says that that God, um, um, we will not save by works, but for works. Right? We were saved to do things that God planned in advance for us to do. But we wouldn't really experience the fulfillment of that unless we humble ourselves and humble ourselves to God's word in obedience to his word. So we go to the latter, latter part of verse 8 and going straight down to verse 10. It says, to, he, he was given, this is in Ephesians 3 by the way, he, was, he had to preach this to the Gentiles, the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. So Paul wasn't just humble and being effective, um, the grace that he was given as an, as an apostle and as a writer of the Bible, but also in terms of administration. He was able to, wherever he went, lay down to the church exactly how this gospel, this ministry, this mystery was to be administered in the way that God ordained it right in verse 10 he says his his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of god should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms okay what is he talking about here apparently the church is going to be speaking something to those beings in the heavenly realms and what have we been talking about we've been talking about humility even in the face of, of immense challenge, how our attitudes should be. The church should reflect the humility that Paul is displaying here. It is the manifold wisdom of God, it says, as being made known to the rulers in the heavenly realms. I believe that this is, is aptly described in Psalm 8. If we look at Psalm 8, You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Paul, we'll take verse four to five first. What, a, what is a man that you're mindful of him? Human beings that you care for them. We were made from dust. We are, our life is, is three score and ten. You know, when you compare that to the angels, and the Bible describes them as ministering spirits. Um, flames of fire in Hebrews 1. They are far more glorious than we are. Yet, for some reason, God is mindful of us as human beings. He cares for us. He says we we have been crowned with glory and honor. But if you go up to verse 2 in Psalm 8, it says, Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Who is the foe and the avenger? The devil is described as our adversary. He is the foe and the avenger. Yet, somehow, through the praise of children and infants, God establishes a stronghold. When we look at Matthew 18, it it describes in verse 1 to 4, it says, Unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking again about humility. Through the praise of children and infants, you will establish a stronghold. You see, the church needs to display this behavior. The manifold wisdom of God is humility. It is us choosing to recognize the gifts and the talents that God has given us, recognize that we have, been, we have received grace, the forgiveness of sins, which we could never by ourselves have achieved or anything that we could do. But God has also placed gifts within us that we should be humble about. And humble enough to share with others, to give to others. And this should be reflective in the church. But it is a process of humility and humiliation that brings this grace to its full fruition. And it does something. It speaks a manifold wisdom, as it says in verse 10, um, which should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. If we go down now to... verse 11 to 13 um, my point here is confidence in humility and verse 11 to 13 it says according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in christ jesus our lord in him and through faith humble obedience to god's word that is we may approach god with freedom and confidence i ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are your glory So we go back up to verse 11. It says, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul is saying here, you have reason to be confident in humility. Even though the the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, the evil ones at least, are striving to derail you and cause you to to step away from God. Or if it is that you're not in Christ, it's caused you to not um, have a relationship in Christ right? He says, you know what? We should be confident because of what God is doing or has already done because the word he used here is is accomplished. It's not like it still has to be done. It's already done. And who is it done in? It's done in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So uh, if we look at Philippians 2, we get some insight into what is happening here. Philippians 2 verse 5 It says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So you see the humility of Christ being shown here. And being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. So two things here. This is the perfect example of humility. This is the, this is the if you want to call it the gold standard, Right? but also that this has already been done, it's already accomplished. So we should have confidence to be humble and not allow ourselves to, to be, um, I guess, caught up in our own defectiveness, our own pride, to not obey God's word. We should be confident that Jesus has already achieved this. He already is seated in the heavenly realms over every authority, and we have confidence to approach him, to pray to him, to seek him out in our challenges so that we can obey and speak volumes to the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. So if we go back up to verse 12, it says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So that's exactly what I've been talking about, that because of what Jesus has already accomplished, we have faith. We have faith in his humble obedience for us to be humble and obedient to God's word so that we could approach him with freedom and confidence, that we could go to him with whatever the challenges that we are facing, that he would understand and he would direct us how to obey him, how to walk in the path that, that he has called us into. In verse 13, it says, I ask you, therefore, to not be discouraged. You know, it could be discouraging. Your leader is in jail. You know, he is he's suffering for the thing that you all are professing. You know, but... It's in that humility, in Paul's life uh, as a proclaimer of the Christian gospel, that he's, he's imprisoned. And it is was something to, to rejoice in, to glorify in, because it's through humil- humility, right, that God is being glorified. And that's what it says in the latter part, because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. It is so countercultural to what this world this, um, looks at as glory. You know, we need um, the world glorifies somebody who is wealthy or somebody who is super talented or somebody who has all the likes on Facebook and all these different um, social media. But rather, you see the opposite in God's kingdom. It is through humility and humiliation and obedience to God's word that glory is brought to God. So we should have confidence in humility. So we move on to the, the fourth point, which is... From verse 14, straight down to the end of chapter 3, in verse 21, it says, My point here is humility, then unity, through love in the Trinity. I know that's a bit of a rhyme, probably a mouthful as well, so I'll repeat it. Humility, then unity, through love in the Trinity. I'll read from verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derive its name. now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all the generation, all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know, in verse 14, it says, For this reason, the reason being that humility to God's word is desperately needed, right? Each individual for godly unity to be brought about, Paul kneels before God the Father. Right? In prayer for each individual. He then says something very peculiar. That every family in heaven and earth derives its name from the Father. The Father is the decision maker. The one in the Trinity who the other members in the Trinity submits to. We see that if we do a study of the Trinity um, throughout the scripture. You see that, that Jesus listened to every word that God said. That he obeyed God completely. And likewise the Spirit. Oh, and by the way, the family unit doesn't only operate on earth alone. So we see that there in um, verse 14, that every family in heaven and on earth, which is a very interesting um, concept that there there is this family um, dynamic occurring in the heavenly realms. I think this is reflective of the family nature of the Trinity. It's a relationship between the Father, Son, and, and the Spirit. But Paul is kneeling before God the Father, right, for each individual In verse 16 he says he, he, he talks about He gives out of his glorious riches To each individual Through his spirit So he's bringing in his spirit now In your inner being These are all gifts that God is giving You don't get this by yourself God gives this Through his glorious riches And now he's working through his spirit In your inner being Right Um, On a a side note, um, when we think about the Spirit being in your inner being, this is, of course, an assumption that each individual is in Christ, that you have believed in Jesus, repented of your sins, and been baptized, and have received the gift of God's indwelling Holy Spirit. If you're not such a person, then I encourage you to reach out to the person who invited you or visit our church website at at poscoc.org to find out how someone can spend time to show you God's plan of salvation for your life so back to verse 16 he gives out of his glorious riches through his spirit in your inner being so that and he says christ may dwell in your hearts through faith paul is praying that you and i as individuals will receive this humility through the trinity this attitude of submission to god's word no matter our situation which in essence is Christ dwelling in us through faith. Now, just as a side again, you see this concept of the family in the Trinity, right? Also play out in the following chapters of Ephesians, which we will not look at. In chapter five, it talks about the relationship between husband and wife, um, um, the, the children um, relating to their father and, and, and to, their, well, to their parents. How, how this attitude of humility plays out in the family dynamic. Right? In the latter part of verse 17, he prays that each individual will be rooted and established in love. And that is to say, in like for example, in first John 5 3, it talks about the fact that to, to love God is to obey his commands. That is the that is the, the, the working that God is bringing about through the Trinity into each individual. That we now have a desire and a heart to want to obey God's commands. Because that, that is the rooting of love. The rooting of love is not a, 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 a feeling. It is not emotionalism. It is not your tradition, your traditionalism. It is not ex- existentialism, which is living for the now, whatever your pleasures or your desires are. That is love. That is not the love that he's referring to here. It is not ut- utopianism, what you hope the future holds for you or for any particular group. It's not any kind of ism or schism. This love that, that, that Paul is referring to here is, is to be rooted and established in your love through obedience to God's word. Right? That is what Paul wants you to be rooted in. And that is coming through the power of the Holy Spirit, working through, through, from the riches of God the Father so that we'll have the fullness of Christ in our lives. Paul then moves from the individual idea to the idea of, of godly unity in the church. and verses 18 to 19, after you have been rooted in love for God's word as a group of individuals practicing humble obedience, we will begin to grow in our experiential understanding of God's love together. Something, it says, that it blows past what even all the knowledge in all the world could ever bring about. He talks about knowledge. It surpasses knowledge. Our love for one another will be miraculous if it is we practice that, that rooting of love in obedience to God's word. Such a deep concern for one another resulting in all of the one another passages in scripture, of which there are about a hundred, being played out in our lives. Now, so just, just some three broad areas that the one another passages play out. Um, Unity, in Mark 9:50, be at peace with one another, Right? Um, love in romans 12 10 it talks about be devoted to one another in love humility john 13 4 wash one another's feet and imagine there are a hundred of a hundred plus of these verses of one another relationships the rooting of love in god's word would play itself out into the wider community bringing about that godly unity but it stems first of all from humility In verse 19, it says we will be filled with the fullness of God in spite of the challenges presented to us in this world and by the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We will be filled with the fullness of God. We will have that attitude, that mindset, that godly unity that God is is, is desirous of us having as a body of believers. In verse 20 to 21, Paul says that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. But according to his power that is at work within us. His power, again, stems from humility. You know, they say that water flows to the lowest point. God's spirit, I believe, will fill us if it is we are truly humble and at our lowest point before God in reverence and submission to him and his word and reverence and submission even as we deal with one another in our relationships that is the working of god's spirit brought on by our humility before his word and our faith acting out his commands the spirit the spirit will act in ways that is nothing short of miraculous this hope and promise according to verse 21 is for the glory of god in the church for all generations so it's a hope and a promise for us in our church even today you know i have one illustration um, in the early 1900s, leading into and during the Second World War, there was a father and son, Pierre, um, Friedrich von bon, 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 bon Schwig, right? They were both named um, Friedrich von Bodelschwig. Bon bon, bon Forgive me for crucifying the guy's name, but they were senior and junior. right? They were Lutheran pastors, and they had great compassion on the needy, and especially the disabled. As the Nazi Third Reich rose to prominence under Adolf Hitler, the philosophy the philosophy of the Nietzschean Übermensch, which is really um, the superman, the German super race, they, they believed that they were superior, um, started taking more and more root in politics, in social discourse, the economics of the day, and eventually the church. The church was essentially nationalized, and ideas of euthanasia, which is essentially um, mercy killings, were being perpetuated, right, for the weak and disabled because they weren't, um the boy, they weren't real humans. They were almost less than human. This is in addition to the death camps reserved for the Jews, which accounted for approximately six million people gassed to death because they also were considered subhuman. Just think about the church going through this pressure where they were being nationalized and forced to conform to some kind of policy to approve euthanasia as some form of mercy killing for these subhuman beings. Quoting from Wikipedia, it says, According to the the noted psychiatrist Carl Stern's memoir, The Pillar of Fire, page 119, there was a famous Lutheran pastor, Bodelschwig the Younger, his father had passed away in 1910, who built up a huge colony of feeble-minded idiots. This is in this guy's book, right? Feeble-minded idiots and epileptics in Bethel, in Western Germany. During the war when the Nazis carried out the slaughter of all mental patients, Pastor Bottleschrig insisted that he would be killed together with his inmates. It was only on the basis of his international fame that the politicians let him get away with it and let him and the inmates of his colony live. This was a kind of last-ditch stand of Christianity. One man determined to obey God's word in the midst of what um, C.S. Lewis described in his book, The Abolition of Man, men without chest, that is men without heart. No regard for human life except what it can achieve for, for your ideology and personal gain. He built a colony and a church of people determined to obey God rather than man. On one occasion in February 1941, when a physician's, physician's commission arrived at Bethel to force Bodelschwig to fill out the green forms, that is the forms that authorised the euthanasia, he refused. Staff members expressed their willingness to forcibly resist any attempted transportation of sick persons by force, and the commission eventually departed. So it wasn't only one man, but a united group standing up for godliness in a situation where everything seemed against them. What a miracle that they were able to save so many lives. Even till this day, the von Bordelschwig foundations of Bethel are still in operation, helping more than 14,000 persons in clinics, homes, schools, kindergartens, living groups, work therapy facilities, and shops for the disabled. God can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power at work within us. This is the attitude of these guys, Bordelschwig, you know, and uh, it is amazing that they were able to do that in the midst of, of something as, as so devious and devilish as, in, as Nazi Germany at, at, the, at the point in time. It is possible, guys, that we can live out this godly unity to profound effect in our time and in our country. In our world today, there are such ideas, such evil ideas Um, spurred on by by evil spiritual beings and these ideologies of evil are perpetuated in our political social cultural economic and even our ecclesiastical lives even within the church will we be like paul and humble ourselves to god's word and obey god come with me will we be rooted and established in love as individuals by in our own individual obedience to god and also as a community of believers as we practice one-another relationships amongst each other. So that when the time of testing comes, we will be able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power at work amongst us. Amen. Let's go before God in a word of prayer this time. Heavenly Father, God Almighty, it is um, really amazing, God, that you provide for us. You have provided um, Paul as an apostle, the prophets, the word of God to to guide us. From since 2,000 years ago, we still have it in your scriptures. You call us, God, to humble ourselves before you and your word to, to be obedient so that you could work that power of love in our hearts, in our individual hearts, that we could be rooted and established in that love. And also God, as, as a group of believers, that we could, we could show that love to one another so that we can do immeasurably more than we can, all that we ask or even imagine according to your power at work amongst us. I pray, Father, for godly unity amongst your church throughout the world and especially here in Trinidad and Tobago so that we can bring you glory no matter what comes our way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.